So now we have Mark Allendary coming up with Movement Mondays at the Ace Hotel. In the Three Keys rooms. Give it up, y'all. That's right. We have a bigger crowd. Give it up, man. There you go. <laughs> Uh, it's really a pleasure to be here, y'all. Uh, the United States is facing an affordable housing crisis. Nearly two-thirds th- two of renters nationwide say they can't afford to buy a home, and saving for that down payment isn't getting any easier anytime soon. Home prices are rising at twice the rate of wage growth. According to research from the advocacy group Home One, 11 million Americans, roughly the population of both New York uh, and uh, New York City and Chicago combined spend more than half of their paycheck on rent. Harvard researchers found that t- in 2016, nearly half of renters were cost-burdened to find a spending up to 30% or more of their income on rent, compared with 20% in 1960. The National Low Income Housing Coalition found that a renter working 40 hours a week and earning minimum wage can afford to buy uh, can afford a two-bedroom apartment and not be cost burdened in exactly zero counties nationwide. In other words, it's absolutely impossible. Even as the economy continues to grow and the housing market rebounds from the Great Recession, Americans face widening inequality and for many an inability to comfortably pay for housing as wage growth stagnates and housing costs continue to climb. So today it is my pleasure to talk with three experts on this issue surrounding affordable housing. Uh, from the Greater New Orleans Fair Housing Action Center, it's Kashana Hill, who's the executive director. And the Greater New Orleans Fair Housing Action Center is a nonprofit civil rights organization that was established in 1995 to eradicate housing discrimination. Their work throughout Louisiana includes education, investigation, and enforcement activities. They are dedicated to fighting housing discrimination because it is an illegal and divisive force that perpetuates poverty, segregation, ignorance, fear, and hatred. More information can be found at gnofairhousing.org. It's a pleasure to have with us as well from Jane Place Neighborhood Sustainability Initiative, Brian DeDecker, who is the program manager. Uh, and uh, Jane's Place Neighborhood Sustainability Initiative is a community land trust and housing rights organization committed to creating sustainable, democratic, and economically just neighborhoods and communities in New Orleans. For nearly 10 years, they've worked to increase the range of affordable housing options available to low and moderate income residents and advocating for housing justice across the city. And then lastly, we have uh, from the Louisiana Mental Health Coalition, the chair of the steering committee, uh, Carolyn Meehan. I say that right? Mean, yes, all right. And uh, the Louisiana Mental Health Coalition is a collective of organizations and individuals across Louisiana who support health and needs for people with mental health needs. That's the intro. Thank you, guys. It really is a pleasure to have all three of you guys uh, here with us uh, today. Uh, the topics of uh, conversation for the next hour are going to uh, start with uh, some of the results of the ballot initiatives uh, that just happened this weekend, and I have a few words to say about that myself personally. Uh, then we're going to talk about the new report on discrimination that the uh, uh, that uh, dis- uh, uh, that the God I can't re- is it the Greater New Orleans? How did you say? Is it- it's yeah. Is there yeah yeah? Is your mic yeah? Maybe just switch. Is that on it? I'm sorry about that. Um, you can just say Fair Housing, Fair Housing Action Center, GNOFAC, any of those will work. Thank you. And 
then also uh, we're going to talk about some of the recent reporting on serious health and safety issues in apartment buildings in, in New Orleans East. And so with that being said, uh, with that being said, uh, we are having some technical difficulties up here. So, uh, so but we'll get this all taken care of. That's, that's Scott, we'll, I'll, we'll just share microphones until Axel comes back, all right? I, I don't know. Uh, maybe if you could just text them on my computer over there. Um, great. <laughs> well, first let me just say... Uh, we usually it's 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 uh, it's not usually these full of uh, technical snitch uh, uh, glitches here. First, let me just say um, I had I was very conflicted this weekend with the uh, the win of uh, of uh, Governor Bell Edwards. Obviously, I was happy uh, to see him win. I can't believe how close we got to really stepping you know several decades backwards. Uh, but when it comes to uh, and and as a physician who cares mostly, if not almost exclusively, for Medicaid population or population of uninsured or underinsured individuals, especially those people living with HIV, it was a relief to know that 500,000 people are not going to be kicked off the Medicaid rolls. But. While we supported uh, Governor John Bell Edwards, I just want to be very clear uh, that we are going to continue to advocate for women's rights and reproductive rights as well. And I just feel very um, that that's something that is incredibly important for us to not lose sight of. Um, and so with that, I just wanted to kind of turn the microphone over to you. And I guess uh, who's going to talk about ballot initiatives? Is there... I know that. So I guess in terms of the first ballot initiative, the $500 million bond initiative passed that had $25 million dedicated to affordable housing. How is that money going to be spent? So um, for the Fair Housing Action Center, we definitely felt like it was important to um, come out in full support of um, this ballot initiative. You know, we knew that uh, the infrastructure and housing bond would mark the first time that New Orleans would join other major cities and include affordable housing as part of a bond issue. And so we really felt like this was sort of a win-win. Um, the bonds won't raise the millage. And then um, $250 million will be used to fund long-term capital projects like drainage, stormwater management. Um, and we all know how important those things are as, you know, we're dealing with um, more and more flooding events in New Orleans um, every year. Um, and then $25 million will be set aside for um, affordable housing, in particular construction and rehab of desperately needed affordable housing. And so that affordable housing funding is critically important, um, especially given that under this current presidential administration and just with the um, climate of the federal government in general, um, those federal dollars that are given to cities for new public housing, they're shrinking. And we have fewer and fewer of those dollars available. And so it's really important for federal governments and local municipalities to come up with creative solutions for our affordable housing crisis. Certainly, that, that that this bond initiative did do something like that, uh, with allowing twenty five million dollars to be uh, utilized for affordable housing. Absolutely, it does. Um, well, I'll just add, I don't I don't know the specifics of how the city's going to use it, but I can tell you how I hope they use it. Um, and from the perspective of the Louisiana Mental Health Coalition, um, we um, sorry, we um, represent individuals all over the state and what we've heard in almost every we've been to eight different communities around the state over the past year and what we've heard 
literally in every community is that housing is the number one um, issue for people living with mental illness um, and the lack of affordable housing and um, the lack of understanding of mental illness that often leads them to be um, evicted or lose their housing um, really needs to be addressed. And so I'm hoping that New Orleans will spend that money and also, you know, for affordable housing in general, but also with an eye on um, people in our community who are living with mental illnesses and the sort of supportive housing that they will need. And my hope is that New Orleans will um, can be an example for the rest of the state, municipalities across the state, as Kashana said, as federal dollars dry up, I think we're going to need to have more local solutions. And I'm hoping New Orleans can kind of, um, you know, set the bar there. Yeah, and I would I would just like to add two more um, little details, which is, first, we really need to be cognizant about who the affordable housing is actually affordable for. When you actually dig into the numbers around available affordable housing units in the city of New Orleans, you see that apartments that are targeted for about 80% AMI, and that's around $45,000 for a family of four, we're pretty well covered and saturated for that. And unfortunately, when developers actually develop affordable housing, and this is both nonprofit developers and for-profit developers, that's the income tranche that they tend to develop housing at because it's the least expensive for them to develop. It has the least amount of subsidy that they have to put into it. And really where the pain starts to hit the market, and this is when we start talking about extremely vulnerable populations, um, is at the 30% AMI um, and lower income. So we're talking about families that are around $15,000, um, $20,000. Those are really the incomes where we need to deeply expand affordable housing opportunities. And that's really when we start talking about affordable housing, we always need to be centering this idea of who's actually able to afford the housing that's created. And with that in mind, the other thing that I would like to raise is ensuring that public dollars spent on affordable housing is permanently affordable housing, right? We know that a lot of public dollars have been spent on properties that are eventually going to sunset and revert to market housing. And that is just a sort of short-sighted strategy that we can no longer be investing in. Uh, and I would really love and urge the city of New Orleans to look at investing in community land trusts. You know, Jane Place is a community land trust. We build permanently affordable community-controlled housing. Um, we offer leases that are more friendly for tenants. Um, we have, like, really baked-in tenant rights in all of our leases. And we're really cognizant about ensuring that vulnerable populations are able to permanently stay in a community and that those, unit, that those units are remo removed from the market and cannot be speculated upon. So uh, two things, uh, two words that even uh, that, that I don't really quite understand. So if you can help me understand what an AMI is and help us understand what a community land trust is. So um, AMI is just uh, shorthand for area median income. Um, and thank you for pointing that out. I think those of us who are, you know, working in the housing space tend to throw terms like that out. I'll be um, very quick, too. I'll be like, <laughs> what does that mean? I don't yes, know. Uh, yes, um, I appreciate that. And um, so you're, we're really just talking about um, sort of the median income for people in the New Orleans metropolitan area. And for a family of four um, in New Orleans, the area median income 
income is currently at about $36,000. And so if we're talking about affordability levels, as Brian mentioned, um, developers can build housing at that are affordable to people making a certain percentage of the area median income. And so we tend to see a lot of affordable housing that is affordable to people whose salaries are at 80% of that $36,000. But when we talk about um, people who are really living at near or below the poverty line, we, that's when we're starting to get at that deeply affordable housing that is affordable to people making 30% of the area median income. So, and you guys brought up, and I'm going to get back to land trust in a quick second, because you guys really did bring up something that had never occurred to me, and this is why I love doing these interviews, because I, I learned so much. Affordable housing is affordable housing is affordable housing. It was in my brain until you just brought it to my attention, until Brian just brought it to my attention that when we're talking about affordable housing, what are we talking about in affordable housing? And that's a great point. And so... <clears throat> Of course, so let's just talk about folks that make minimum wage, right? Minimum wage and annual salary, is that like, what is that, like 15000 or 20000 And we see that a majority, certainly the jobs here in, 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 in Orleans Parish that tend to be more hospitality-oriented and that tend to be tips-based and or minimum wage-based. Of course, we're seeing a lot of these folks that work in Orleans Parish that actually make New Orleans and the French Quarter and the CBD what it is between the food and the and the music and the entertainment and the hospitality. These folks are being priced out, just like the in my intro that the study that was done uh, in that the um, that one entity, the Lo- National Low Income Housing Coalition, which was a shocking statistic. It came out like six months ago, I think, that showed that people who make minimum wage cannot live in a American city that they are being forced out and and so i guess my question is this it's a really relevant point so my first question is is why forty five thousand? what is it is there is that like the sweet spot for developers is that just the like it you know why can't they build to accommodate more lower income folks yeah so that sort of comes back to what kashana was talking about earlier which is who is actually funding affordable housing development because the federal government for decades and decades and decades has been systematically under investing in affordable housing development. Um, You know, it goes as far back as Richard Nixon in the 70s. He completely stopped construction of all public housing. Um, Ronald Reagan deeply cut at HUD. Again, Bill Clinton deeply cut at HUD. Can I just interrupt? Department of Housing and Urban Development. No, 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 no. no, no. Can I just interrupt? Was this, why? Was this a thing, was this a war on the poor? Was this racism? Was this taking land and turning it on to so that other economic development? All of the above. All of the above. Um, Okay. It's just a, it's a real layer cake okay, of okay, uh, despicable okay. uh, uh, reasons behind of, uh, why, reasons. The, why the federal <laughs> government has systematically underinvested in housing development. At the same time, foundations are not interested in de- like supporting that work because they really see it as a role of the federal government, of state governments, to be supporting that level of work. And so there's this missing pot of money that is deeply needed to develop affordable housing, and it doesn't actually exist at the level that we need it. Um, that That's the long of the short of it. And, and I would also add to Brian's point that there is also... Um 
there's a tendency to um, mask, right, um, what we're talking about when we're talking about affordable housing. There's a tendency to try and make the idea of affordable housing a little more palatable. We, you know, so some of us folks um, tend, tend to get a little cute when we start talking about affordable housing and we want to we mention workforce housing mm-hmm. um, or we want to, you know, talk about um, housing that is uh, affordable to teachers and police officers and government workers and, of course, those folks deserve to be able to live in the cities where they work, right? Um, but as Brian mentioned, what we know is that when developers are building housing that um, rents below market rate, those folks who are at that 80% area median income level, uh, that's where the attention and, and where the housing units are going. But there is still a need to address, particularly in New Orleans, as you mentioned, Mark Allen, there's still a need to address those folks who are actually making our city run, right? Those those minimum wage and lower wage workers who are really, really are the hospitality industry in this city. When we're talking about... Um, building housing that's affordable to people at 80% of area median income, we are not addressing those folks who work in these hospitality jobs. And that's what we need to be doing because those are the people who create the culture that we sell to the world. Yeah, and I would just add the, you know, as the federal government has stopped investing in general um, in affordable housing, they've also stopped investing in affordable housing for specific populations, including people with disabilities, physical, intellectual, developmental disabilities, as well as people with mental illnesses. Um, you know, the programs are HUD 202s and 811s um, for the policy nerds out there. Um, and those, um, I, you know, the federal government, I think um, some, of, some of that lack of investment came from, you might say, a good place, which is that we shouldn't sort of be institutionalizing or seg- segregating people because of disabilities or because of conditions. Um, I think... More, more than likely, um, it was just a, um, you know, a lack of connection to fund affordable housing, as was mentioned. If you're tuned in, you're listening to 102.3 WHIV. This is Resistance Radio. My name is Mark Allendary, and we are broadcasting live from the Ace Hotel. Give it up, y'all. Thank you. Uh, with us today from the Greater New Orleans Fair Housing Action Center is Kashana Hill, who's the executive director. More information can be found at gnofairhousing.org. From Jane Place Neighborhood Sustainability Initiative is Brian DeDecker, who's the program manager. And more information about Jane Place Neighborhood Sustainability Initiative can be found at jpnsi.org. And the uh, chair of the steering committee uh, at the uh, Louisiana Mental Health Coalition is Caroline Meehan and Meehan, sorry. And then more information can be found at, on Facebook at, at Louisiana Mental Health Coalition. So before we continue, I just I really like because we are living in I, because we are we are in the CBD. I live in the CBD, um, and I always joke. Uh, you know, I moved here uh, just right before Katrina. And I love this neighborhood, um, and it was it was working. It, to me, was at that time it was a lot of working machine shops, and um, and which is only co- a couple condo buildings. And I lamented that it was uh, gentrifying uh, to somebody on 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 the radio, and it was a person who specializes in gentrification. And he quickly corrected me, uh, and I was very humbled. And I like to tell the story because I was humbled uh, in that they uh, he re- uh, essentially told me that I gentrified the CBD. And that was a very good point. Fifteen years ago, I did gentrify the CBD. 
But, uh, th and this goes back uh, to what you had said earlier in that, because this is a very good point. We're seeing all these condos go up, and we know that there's tax initiatives, and maybe help us understand how these tax initiatives work. Because you have something like the American Can Company, right, that that building, like, on the day that those those subsidies were those uh, tax indices ran out or that was essentially there for affordable housing, those people were were tossed out, I mean, on the day of. And, uh, uh, and, and so I think your point is, well, take it. Why are we allowing and, get, and turning money over to, to developers to develop these buildings uh, and then only allowing five or seven or I don't know how many years they're supposed to be there for, quote, unquote, mixed income? So that's open to anybody on the panel. I would just quickly say that I, I think part of, part of what happened with the American Can um, in particular and something that I know that Jane Place works a lot to, to change um, and the Fair Housing Action Center has been involved as well is that we need to, um, as a community, rethink um, how we think about housing in general but also how we view the role of developers. There has tended to be this idea that developers are um, providing this housing out of the goodness of their hearts. And, you know, we have, in some instances, as a community, taken what we can get. Um, and we know that scenarios like the American can happen when we prioritize the profit that developers make above everything else. And so we need to be very clear that developers are not necessarily providing housing because they're great, nice people. They are making money from doing that. Um, and as a community, it's really up to us to demand that folks who get our public dollars, right, live up to their end of the bargain. We can demand that they provide ongoing long-term affordable housing if they want our tax dollars. And so we need to be clear that we are an equal, powerful partner in that relationship. And as a community um, and as a society, I would say that that, that hasn't been clear. Um, and hopefully going forward, it will be. Well, it's it, the, to me, it's sort of a parallel situation or an analogous situation to the industrial tax exemption program, which gives businesses you know, uh, tax exemption to locate in Louisiana, and then they're supposed to create a certain amount of jobs. They really do. And I feel like we're just sort of, there's been a lot of discussion about that. I don't know whether or not it's going to change. It has, Governor Edwards, yes, who we have mixed feelings about, of course, um, has, has given more local control to that process. So I sort of see, you know, as more people become aware of just that dynamic generally, um, I'm hoping it might, you know, translate into holding affordable housing developers perhaps a little more accountable. Yeah, and I, I think it also speaks to the systemic issues with, as, as a country, we have created a federal policies where the way affordable housing is created is due to tax breaks, right? It's like there's not a lot of direct development dollars. When a developer is getting, quote, unquote, public dollars, for, um, hello, okay, when they're getting quote-unquote public dollars um, for affordable housing development, often what it is is they're getting tax credits, which they then sell on a market 
to corporations, to wealthy people, and then they use the proceeds from those tax credits to actually fund the development of housing. So there's a market for these tax credits? Yes. Is that? Yes. <laughs> and that's actually, that, that's like where the majority, it's called the Low Income Housing Tax Credit Program. Um, so, and, people, so rich people are making money on poor people? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I know that's the yes, one. Yes, and then developers, the developers the are making money off of all of it, right? I understand that. Um, and you see it in all sorts of ways where it's like developers are getting sweet deals on public land, and then they only actually have to do the housing as affordable housing for 15 years. So, like, people are making money hand over fist, and we're still not creating enough deeply affordable housing for everyone. Um, families are still incredibly stressed, even in these, quote-unquote, affordable housing developments. Um, it's just an incredibly inefficient way to build and manage public build and manage housing and what's really wild about that is this all has roots in sort of like the rise of neoliberalism in the democratic party and it's this whole ideology of run everything like a business except we're getting this incredibly inefficient process and it's incredibly expensive and it isn't actually creating lasting housing but it's inefficient from the perspective of the what we're looking at, right? The advocates, the folks that care about the community. I assume it's very efficient for the people who are making money on this, right? I mean, sure, as it, like as like a trough that people can yes, eat off of. Yes, yes, it's, yes, it's very efficient. It's also like I would also like to point out one other way in which it's very inefficient, um, which is you know, Jane Place as, a, as an organization, we do a lot of work around tenant rights. We have monthly tenant right meetings where folks can like. Uh, come and get pro bono legal support. Um, We also are doing a lot of work in eviction court right now. And one way that it's also um, been really efficient, inefficient, is it's created all of these barriers between the folks being served and like the federal government and the state government who's actually ultimately responsible for creating housing. You know, 30, 40 years ago, there was a real direct relationship between a lot of people who were in subsidized housing because it was man it was managed by the federal government and they had a lot of rights that they were able to assert because it was directly managed by the federal government but the more you sort of break up that direct relationship the more you insert third party management companies yes, the yes, more you insert yes. um, situations where you break up communities and only make a handful of people um, in one development, and there's more people managed by the same company across town. You're breaking up like the ability for people to exercise power, right? Um, and I think that's another way in which it's it's been inefficient because it's you, broken up all these power centers for right. more people and, to and organize. In, in fact, what we have seen uh, with corporations is that they're constantly bringing in these third party entities to deflect yes. any responsibility. Absolutely. And the classic example of this is when Representative Ocasio Cortez was grilling uh, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, the CEO of Facebook, and asking about why was it that a white nationalist was uh, company was vetting their uh, their news feed, he was like, oh, well, no, 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 that has nothing to do with us. This is that company that deals with that. You got to go talk to them about that. And that just seems to be this ongoing trend uh, with uh, corporations or, or, or powerful entities to constantly deflect any any blame so that it doesn't come to them. Um, so before we go on, I just I realize I have three experts sitting in here in front of me. And I, just one question that has been in a slightly off script. So I, I, I'm when I first got to New Orleans, uh, probably about three or four years in, they started to knocked on all the housing projects that were here and there's been a bunch of new development i'm just wondering if i could just get your guys quick take on what the down the downside um of of that has been has that been a positive a negative a neutral any thoughts not enough data to to talk about it 
I mean, it was supposed to be a panacea, right? I mean, that was what was promised, but that, that's what these things are typically promised as. But now, as I realize, I have three experts in front of me. I just was wondering, before we continue on with our, our itinerary, what, what, what y'all's takes are on that. I can I can start. Just, I'm going to be I'm going to try really hard to be quick, but this is like an impossible question to get a quick take on. And their whole like books that could be written about this probably have been. Um, so what you're referring to um, for people who may not know is that um, in 2008 the city council voted to demolish what was then known as the Big Four, um, and those were the four largest public housing developments in the city. And the idea was that um, folks would uh, leave these communities and these neighborhoods with their shiny housing choice vouchers, which were then known as Section 8 vouchers, and they would have access to any housing of their choice that met the needs of uh, their families. And we know that that decision was made to demolish public housing, whether those units were actually damaged by floodwaters or not. Um, so whole communities were displaced even when their homes um, hadn't taken in any water. And what is very clear um, is that the promise that we made to those folks who were displaced at that time has not been fulfilled. Um, so there have been some successes. You know, we know um, that there are individuals who have been able to come back into these uh, redeveloped mixed income communities and uh, they love their beautiful new units, right? But we also know that families have been separated um, and we know that uh, people who have vouchers have been pushed into neighborhoods that are further from the city center for all intents and purposes. The, the only neighborhoods where people are are able to use those vouchers are in Algiers and in New Orleans, in New Orleans East. Um, and so folks who may not have access to a car are having to wait uh, for city buses that may not run on time and they just face longer commutes to get back into the neighborhoods where their jobs and where members of their families may be. Um, so we really have not done um, what we promised to do for those folks. Um, and then the last thing I'll say about this is that we also haven't replaced those public housing units that were lost. Part of the promise was that there would be a one-for-one -one redevelopment, and we have not done that or, or really come anywhere close to doing that. Yeah, I mean, this is really just my personal opinion about it, but I always, and this is not just in New Orleans, but in other cities that have, um, because it's been a trend, of course, nationally to um, to um, get rid of affordable housing developments. Um, and I'm thinking of the Chicago example, too, with, you know, which had some really sort of notorious public housing developments. And I think, you know, the um, the criticism of public housing is always, oh, it's, it, 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 it's, crime ridden, it's violent, all this stuff, which really, and then that's sort of the justification for um, getting rid of it. And then you realize that, I mean, if you're not going to solve poverty or the structural problems, um, you're not, you're not solving anything by, you know, blowing up a building and then, um, and, 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 and dispersing a community. I mean, you know, you hear that too, um, as, as you talked about Kashana with people who've lived there for generations or lived around their friends and family, and then they're, um, they're scattered, they're farther from services, um, they're living, I'm sure, sometimes in neighborhoods that are not welcoming. And so um, I, I'm not sure that, um, you know, I think I always think that's sort of a cosmetic fix for structural problems. 
Yeah, I, I would agree. I just feel like we have all of the political expediency when the beneficiaries are um, wealthy property developers, whereas I feel like for decades now, folks have been saying we need to build more deeply affordable, permanently affordable housing, and we have not seen our elected officials at any level of government rise to that um, demand. And so why do we have all of the political expediency in the world to demolish housing and not actually to recreate it? You know, and, and I, it, to me, it seems like a very good example. The, the mixed housing that, that we talked about that came up in place of what these public housing ones was, to me, seems like another an example of the neoliberal kind of uh, uh, mechanisms by which to run uh, uh, a city or how to create affordable housing. And it just seems to me, like, my sense is that it, it was a failure. And just hearing from, from you three uh, who are experts in this, it just it helps kind of solidify. Because I remember the promises. And I was like, well, they're, they're promising. I, I'm much more cynical now than I was then. I was a little bit yeah. more trusting then. But uh, I, I think another thing that we should always talk about when we're, and this is like a particularly difficult conversation, but in addition to sort of one of the justifications that um, were, was utilized to redevelop public housing into mixed income communities is the idea that low income people in public housing, which in New Orleans and in many cities, we're talking predominantly people of color, we're talking predominantly women, we're talking a lot of people with disabilities, with um, uh, serious illnesses, that maybe their problems are them personally, and if we get them next to some wealthier individuals, the, like the wealthier individuals, their sort of like interpersonal goodness will just magically rub off, and these pathologies of these communities will somehow be fixed. That, I feel like, has not necessarily been talked about as much as it was in like the 90s and early 2000s, but we have to be really clear that that was a huge driving force, a huge logic behind why public housing had to be destroyed. And I'm assuming there was no data to show that. That was just based on... Because, I mean, obviously, the, the structures of oppression, right, are still right. there, right? You're not still taking away any of the factors that lead to poverty, that lead to these disabilities, that lead to these health issues, all the social and determinants And there's no proof that well, more well-resourced communities will just share their connections right, right, or resources right. out of the goodness of their heart. In fact, we've seen time and time again that it's usually the opposite. So I, the other, the, I, I think what I would add um, is that there's this um, idea that um, demolishing public housing uh, developments would deconcentrate poverty, right? That, that's the goal. And we do know there is a lot of research that, that shows clearly um, that people who live in poverty, who are born into poverty, are, you know, not very likely to escape it. Mm -hmm. um, and so there is benefit um, to living in communities that are well-resourced if you are a person who is born into poverty. Unfortunately, what, what has happened... Um, after demolishing public housing in New Orleans, we've just reconcentrated poverty. So we gave former public housing residents vouchers and told them they could go live in any community, but the community that statistics show would have led to more positive life outcomes have not been open and welcoming to them, which I think is to Breon's point. So Lakeview, for instance, currently has the highest life expectancy in the state of Louisiana. 
there are statistically zero voucher holders in that zip code. Okay, so the neighborhood that would provide the greatest life outcome, right, which is a longer life, um, isn't open to people who live in poverty currently in New Orleans. So we, when I say that we haven't um, fulfilled the promises that were made to folks when we destroyed the public housing developments, I mean that we haven't allowed them access to all neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. All we've done when we said we were going to deconcentrate poverty is place people into poverty that's dispersed over several blocks. Um, but we have certainly reconcentrated poverty. The last thing I want to say about this is that um, only about uh, 20% of voucher holders across the country are actually living in well-resourced neighborhoods, right? So the voucher program is only working for a very small number of voucher holders across the country. In New Orleans, we're, even, we're doing even worse than that. So we have only about 9% of voucher holders who are not living in high-poverty neighborhoods. And it would be really fascinating to see if those 20%, if their health outcomes or if their life expectancy outcomes do change to test that. They do. They do. So the hypothesis is, to a certain degree, valid then? So there's been um, a significant amount of research. There's um, a... Uh, someone out of um, Harvard, I think he's still at Harvard, Raj Chetty, who has put out um, a ton of research um, on this very subject. There's a lot of excitement and a lot of movement, particularly among philanthropic organizations and funders and people working in housing justice spaces about um, this research showing that life outcomes improve for um, children who move into um, well-resourced communities. But what I would say to Brian's point, and, and to some extent having lived this myself, right, um, as a, a, a black woman who has had access to um, very white spaces and majority white schools for many years um, of my life and of my childhood, those um, improved life outcomes don't come without difficulty. They don't come without some pain and without, frankly, some trauma. Um, And so when we talk, when we have these conversations um, about deconcentrating poverty and moving to different neighborhoods, we should be clear about what that means, what that looks like, and we should have these holistic and nuanced conversations. Yeah, I think that's such a great point. And uh, I immediately started to kind of start like 13 questions kind of formed in my mind uh and i would love to go down that pathway because i'm actually personally so a lot of my work is uh looking at a a concept called weathering in which black women age uh uh, more rapidly especially in terms of uh uh, when compared to uh, other uh, uh white women especially but particularly when you look at um uh uh birth rates and infant mortality rates and i think that's kind of what we're that that's what you're talking about and I would love to have you on uh, for another time uh, to talk about that because for me that is such an amazingly interesting uh, um, idea of this idea of of stress, cortisol, leading to advanced aging, which then leads to a number of health outcomes uh, that are all rooted in structural poverty, generational poverty. But 
We'll stick to this for right now. So if you're tuned in, you are listening to 102.3. It's really a, a, an amazing opportunity to have three amazing people here uh, to help me understand uh, affordable uh, housing here in New Orleans. We're talking with Kashana Hill, who's the executive director of the Greater New Orleans Fair Housing Action Center. And more information can be found at gnofairhousing.org. We're speaking with Brian Decker, who's the program manager of Jane Place Neighborhood Sustainability Initiative. And their website is jpnsi.org. And the, uh, we're speaking with Carolyn Mian, who's the chair of the steering committee at the uh, Louisiana Mental Health Coalition. More information about them can be found at Facebook, uh, Louisiana Mental Health Coalition. And we're so happy uh, today uh, to be broadcasting live from the Ace Hotel in front of a live audience. Give it up, y'all. Thank you so much. We actually uh, are here to really talk about this uh, new report that dropped <laughs> uh, or that will be uh, be dropping tomorrow uh, uh, from the uh, Greater New Orleans Fair Housing Action Center. Uh, and uh, Kashana, I'm going to let you just kind of take it from here. It was a really fascinating report. Thank you guys so much for sharing it with me uh, before uh, y'all are officially releasing it. But it really speaks to a lot of the same themes that we're talking about today. So I'm just going to hand it over to you and let you kind of explain how this study came about and what the findings were. And then ideally what can be done as a result of these really shocking findings. Thanks. So I'll share a little bit about um, what the study shows and then maybe ask Caroline to sort of um, pick up with a little bit of information about um, what people um, with mental health conditions are dealing with um, when, when, when seeking housing. So um, at the Fair Housing Action Center, we work with people who are experiencing housing discrimination, right? And we um, have a mission to uh, try and create through a variety of means, open and inclusive communities. And we periodically will go out into communities and do what are called testing investigations, where we train community members to be mystery shoppers and to go out and help us determine whether and how discrimination is happening. Oftentimes, we'll release these studies and reports on our testing investigations because of complaints that we're getting within our office. And so two things really happen um, that were the foundation of, of this study. We were getting a lot of calls from people who have emotional support animals and who were having a very difficult time getting housing providers to accept those animals. And then we also were paying a lot of attention to stories in the news, right? Um, stories about, you know, 95-pound pit bulls uh, attacking people on airplanes. I'm being a little bit facetious, but, you know, stories about um, emotional support peacocks um, that people wanted to have in restaurants. And so there seemed to be um, a national conversation that has been picking up over the last few years around what people with disabilities are quote, entitled to. And so we wanted to look into uh, what was happening within these communities across Louisiana. And we did testing in the New Orleans and Baton Rouge areas. Um, we reached out to 60 housing providers in those communities, and we had our testers, our mystery shoppers, ask about whether uh, a housing provider would be willing to accept an emotional support animal. And they are required to do this under the Fair Housing Act, so I just want to throw that out there. Um, and for our investigations purposes, we were talking about an emotional support animal um, that was a golden retriever named Charlie. Okay, who doesn't love a golden retriever? So, um, so, all, so every, everything was standardized. So you used yes. the same 
same animals, same same everything. Okay. So people have profiles, and you know we make sure that their qualifications are good. You know these are people who would be able to afford the rent, all of those things, um, and they had this same. Um, emotional support animal, which was a golden retriever named Charlie. Um, and I do want to note that we use the dog because the majority of the complaints that we were getting uh, were from people who had emotional support dogs. Even though, you know, as I said, there seems to be a lot of focus uh, nationally on, you know, these really um, sort of exotic examples um, of emotional support animals. So we were hearing from people who mostly had emotional support dogs. And so of those 60 contacts with housing providers, we found that only one in five of the housing providers was actually willing to approve the request for the emotional support animal. Only one in five of the housing providers did what the Fair Housing Act requires. The Fair Housing Act is a federal law that was signed uh, by President Lyndon Johnson in 1968. So we're talking about 51 years of this law being on the books. Um, disability was added um, as a protected class, which just means that people began to receive protections on the basis of their disability in 1988. So we've got um, 30, one years, is that right, um, of protections for people with disabilities under the Federal Fair Housing Act. So none of this is new. Um, and in fact, what we found were that many of the housing providers were aware that the Fair Housing Act requires them to accept these animals, and they just didn't like it. And so they shared those opinions uh, with our testers, which I think Caroline can speak to um, is actually a pretty common experience that people with disabilities have. Yeah, absolutely. I want to thank you all for doing this report. And, you know, it wasn't, well, it wasn't surprising. It was still just incredibly disappointing. Um, I mean, we, as I, as I said earlier, we've talked to people across the state and in every community, people with mental illnesses and other disabilities face um, barriers to accessing housing and to learn that there's just sort of this additional barrier, additional level of discrimination. Um, and it's not just... Um, it's not just the experience of not being able to access housing. Um, it's also just if you get a chance to read the report and some of the feedback that landlords give to people seeking housing with their emotional support animals, Just um, it's just an added layer of sort of shame um, and disbelief. Well, why, you know, it's, it's hard enough to disclose a mental health condition. And when you have to do it to someone you don't know, when you're just trying to find a place to live, and you have to explain why you have your emotional support animal, Charlie, who I'm sure is a very good dog. Um, you know, and then, well, I don't, I don't believe that. I don't believe emotional support animals are a big deal. Why should you need that? You know, it's just, just the thought of um, people across the state um, with mental health conditions being subjected to, to discrimination and then an added layer of sort of shaming and misunderstanding, I think is really, um, is really harmful. Yeah, and I, I, you know, two two points to make. One is I'm going to read from one of the um, one of the landlords uh, uh, from Baton Rouge because I think this is the comment that really stood out. But I, I will say this: as a physician, I get asked pretty regularly to do it, and there's really no guidelines for docs, and that's a problem. And I and, and that's a problem that needs to be because I had somebody who was really pushing me very very hard, and this is a person who I just did not believe experienced the um, uh, this person was putting themselves into a category that I thought was not that was inappropriate 
you know, even though I'm this person's doctor and I know this person's history very, very well, uh, I, I just, I had a really hard time. So that set me off on a, uh, uh, this person got very upset with me and then that set me off on looking at what the guidelines are and they're very sparse. And then there's their service there's service dogs and there's other there's a assistants uh, uh, as well that are meant to that have different categories as well and so I just I think from the perspective of of some guidelines because folks like myself need those guidelines because otherwise the system gets abused where you end up having a peacock or a snake or whatever these exotic you know somebody I think somebody tried to bring someone brought in a little mini horse onto a plane like two or three weeks ago and called it their 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 uh, service animal so if i could just um kind of hop in here sure so actually please. um there are guidelines they're just not centrally located because that would be too easy right um so the report um definitely spells out and of course i would encourage everyone to to review the report um on our website it'll be available um at gnofairhousing.org but the report spells out the difference between um service animals and assistance animals does, yeah. and emotional support animals assistance animal is really the larger umbrella term for for service animals as well as um, emotional support animals. And what I will say about the miniature horses is that those are actually called out by the Americans with Disabilities Act as an approved service animal. All right. And they are, if anybody, corrected. if anybody is ever having a bad day, spend some time Googling <laughs> pictures of miniature horses and your mood will instantly be lifted. I was pretty tired before I came over here and I just got happy. Um, <laughs> Thinking, thinking about the little miniature horses. Some of them have like little sneakers on, and uh, I, I really don't even love animals that much. But but those horses are they're really cute. Um, and so there's a specific place for those those animals in the law. Um, and when it comes to the Fair Housing Act and what the Fair Housing Act requires, um, as a medical provider, um, you'll be happy to know that there are actually guidelines there, right? And so um, what, what folks um, with disabilities, and that's mental health conditions, physical disabilities as well, um, what folks need to be able to show is that they have some sort of condition that qualifies um, as a disability under the Fair Housing Act. And to qualify as a disability under the Fair Housing Act, the condition has to um, impact, significantly impact a major life activity, right? So it could be something um, like COPD, which is a condition of the lungs that impacts your ability to breathe. It could be some kind of mobility issue that impacts your ability to walk. Um, it could be severe anxiety that impacts your ability to work, right? Any of these things, if they impact a significant um, or major life activity, will be a, considered a disability under the Fair Housing Act. And then they just have to be able to show that the assistance animal helps to relieve the symptoms of whatever condition it is that they have that qualifies as a disability. And the provider would write something up or provide something that says, yes, this person has a condition that qualifies as a disability, and yes, this particular animal helps to relieve those symptoms, and they need to have this animal in order to live in the housing. And that's really it. That's what the guidance is. Um, and as Caroline mentioned, 
one of the things that we saw in the study was that we had housing providers who either didn't know um, that the Fair Housing Act requires them to accept those animals or they were deeply skeptical of the information that was provided and they did not believe that this person who was calling actually had the condition um, or disability that they stated that they had. And they were also asking for really specific information about diagnoses, um, which is certainly nothing that the Fair Housing Act requires that a person with a disability give. They, they don't have to divulge uh, personal medical information or any HIPAA-related uh, information. They, they do not. And so the medical provider can certainly provide uh, the Letter, information. documentation. Mm-hmm. And they have the right to ask for that. They have and the right to ask for it. Uh, the housing provider can ask for it, but the provider can provide, can give that information in a letter or something else in a way that doesn't divulge any of that um, protected HIPAA information, for sure. Right, right. Carolyn, were you going to say something? Or? Well, I was just going to go to sort of what, um, you know, what I think we can do, <laughs> given that we have this information now. I mean, I just think there's, there's education that needs to happen on a few levels. Certainly, I think, which I'm sure you all will be doing, Kashana, is just education around for landlords around their obligations under the, the Fair Housing Act um, with regard to emotional support animals. And I just think, think um, I mean, this goes for landlords and the housing industry writ large. I mean, just more understanding of mental health issues and mental illnesses and how it's, it's, it's not, um, in most cases, a disability that you can see or a condition that you can see. Um, and so just um, having more uh, awareness of the prevalence and the kind of um, issues that those folks might be coming with. Do you guys have any specific, is this more of an educational entity then? I mean, or are there specific recommendations? So there are, there are several recommendations. Um, one of the main recommendations is that landlords clearly need to have more education about the law. But there's no single process or any single point of entry to ensure that landlords in Louisiana and in many communities across the country have received any information or training. I tell people all of the time that um, I can no longer be shocked um, about landlords who tell me that they have received absolutely no training about fair housing laws or even about landlord-tenant laws. I've heard it more often than not. And I continue to find that wrong, right? So if we think about the fact that um, operating rental housing is an entirely unregulated business in Louisiana that requires no permits or business licenses, but someone who wants to be a barber has to log 1,500 hours of education and training and pass a state exam, that doesn't make any sense because essentially landlords are providing families with the most important product available, a place to call home and to raise their families, and there is absolutely zero regulation. And we know that that lack of regulation is actually harming people with disabilities. It is harming vulnerable people, and it is leading to higher incidents of housing discrimination. The fact that landlords can engage in this business without any sort of training, without any sort of regulation that is required, causes harm to community members. And so we have to fix that. We have to change that. Are there states that do do that, that that have some sort of regulatory element or some sort of online every year you kind of have to click through this just to make sure that you're up to date with the laws and if so have we seen downstream that there's been positive outcomes as a result of that 
So we definitely know that there are um, states and um, municipalities that require some sort of uh, rental registration or licensing programs um, that ensure that housing providers not only provide information to the municipality about their business, but they also have to receive training on fair housing laws and also um, on landlord-tenant laws. So I, I can talk a little bit more about that if we're going to get into the healthy homes issue. Um, but, you know, this idea of training um, is certainly not something that's new. Realtors, right, have to be trained and have to receive a certain amount of training on fair housing laws in order to maintain their their licenses. So the idea of regulating landlords um, should be something that, that is easily done. Yeah, but I'm sure the lawmakers up in Baton Rouge are landlords themselves, and that's just going to be in, yeah, in they killed a bill themselves. This year. <laughs> uh, was there a bill for that? Uh, coincidentally, yes. um, a majority of the legislators in Louisiana are actually property owners. I'm shocked. Uh, and they are landlords, and so they don't necessarily have any interest in uh, regulating the business in which they engage. Same as the nursing homes. A lot that, of them owners. That, uh, yeah, it's a whole other yeah, yeah. conversation. I would love to have you on yeah. on for that as well. We uh, we have two minutes left. I I know this hour goes by really quick. Um, I'm just gonna let you guys each just have your uh, final words. Um, Go ahead, Brian. We'll start with you. Um, again, Briandi Decker, Jane Place Neighborhood Sustainability Initiative. Two things that I really want to plug very quickly. One, um, we do have monthly renter rights assemblies where folks, if they're having issues with their rental housing with their landlord, they can come and access uh, pro bono legal um, advice and also build power with other renters and hopefully build the power necessary to change the laws up in Baton Rouge and some of the laws um, here in, in the city of New Orleans. And we are also doing an eviction monitoring project. So if anyone is interested in being trained to go into um, civil court here and monitor the eviction proceedings, just uh, reach out. Please let us know. It's a really uh, grueling and exciting project. I, as I told you off air, I was really shocked at these eviction. I, I know people have gone to these eviction uh, courts and the shocking, like it, the 10, 15 second grap rapidness of, of, of It's a of real meat being. grinder. Yeah. Uh, please, uh, Carolyn. Um, yes. Yeah, so I would just um, also encourage everyone to get involved with the Louisiana Mental Health Coalition. We're just a group of um, individuals and organizations um, who... Um, get together to talk about what we can do to, to push for appropriate funding and resources for people with mental health needs in Louisiana. Um, so we are focusing on housing. It's one of our major um, policy priorities, but also transportation, um, which is a huge barrier, and um, protecting Medicaid and the Medicaid expansion. So this weekend was a boon for that. Yes, it was. Ms. Kishana? So I just um, wanted to quickly call um, folks' attention to um, the healthy homes work that GNO Fair Housing is doing, which um, is uh, a, a law, an ordinance, something that we hope to get passed at the state or city level um, 